0: We're going to be opening our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. And we're not going to be done with chapter 3, but we're going to start a study on work and calling this morning, which ties in well with our New Year's commitments and wanting to do things with excellence to the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Let me read Paul's words. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, and to earn their own living. Let me ask you a question as we enter into this new year. Do you like your job? Do you like your vocation? It's probably a good question to ask. Something that a lot of us wrestle with, right? Whether or not we're satisfied in what we do. By asking you that question, I'm really asking you this. Do you enjoy your life? Because most of our waking hours are given to our employment, our station, where we earn a living. A lot of us work secular jobs and some of us just work at home but it's work nevertheless and the question applies all the way around whether you're a volunteer or you're working at home whether you're retired or you're working a job out in the world or if you are in full-time ministry the question remains do you like your life do you like your job that's my question and I think this question is begged from this text because Paul is talking about work and he's talking about people who are lazy in the church Not lazy at church work, but lazy and don't work a job and bring that laziness into the church so they can be enabled to be lazy. And so he's hitting that thing really hard. And these verses are almost as many verses addressing work as Paul did addressing the end times in this chapter or in this book of the Bible. So it's an important topic to reconcile and think through. Are you fulfilled? Are you motivated? Do you enjoy your work? Whether you're on the clock or off hours, whether you have your second job or responsibilities at home, are you content and satisfied? Most people, if you ask them that question, kind of, you know, outside of church or, you know, in privacy, they're going to be pretty negative about their job. Is that right? Is that your experience? A lot of people are gloom and doom and complain about their boss or their life or, you know, their situation, how they're not making enough money. People work not to work, right? You work to, to knock off work, right? You work to pay for what you're going to do to forget about working. I went skiing this week and I did the same thing, right? I mean, we're all guilty of it. You, you, you work to do things to escape the pressures of your life. But in general, do you find satisfaction in what you're doing or are you living for retirement? Are you, are you living for your vacation time to get away from work? Put another way, is work... A curse to you, or is it your calling for you? Is it a curse, or is it a calling? How you answer that question will really color your perspective on your life, because it's a radical difference between curse and calling. Now, I personally like my job. I do. But you, but you immediately say, yeah, it's because you're a preacher, you're a pastor, you're called, you're supposed to like your job, right? And in one sense, I really do count it as this great privilege to wake up and be able to study the Word of God, to meet with God's people, to try to lead a local church, ministry. But in another sense, I've enjoyed all of the jobs I've ever had. I really have especially as a Christian, because I just chose or, or maybe I'm just wired this way to temperamentally view work as a challenge, as an opportunity to achieve and get to know people. And I know some of you are wired in that way. But having a Christian perspective is what grounds this sort of optimism where you can view any work that you're involved in optimistically, positively, and you can see it as a calling on your life, something God has designed for you. I shouldn't just view my job as a calling. You should also view yours as a calling. I don't really make a strong distinction between secular work and sacred work. And I don't think the Bible does either. In the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church made a pretty hard dividing line between secular work or common folk work and the clergy. They separated out nuns and monks and priests from the home. You know, they would make vows of celibacy, separated them from the economy so you're paid by the church, separated from government or politics, all of that governmental authority is happening in the church. You're separated from the culture and you're really separated from... The world, if you're in that situation where you're not in touch with people. Sadly, this mindset has bled into the Protestant Evangelical Church as well. At least on an attitude level, it for sure is here, right? A lot of us, we work our job and we go, well, that's my grind, you know, that I put in during the week. That's my curse. <laughs> and then I can, I can go to church and find a safe haven of rest. That's where I can grow that's where I can get to know people. That's where I can build relationships. But, but I don't view my secular job as redemptive or part of my spiritual life at all. Right? We, we do that in our attitudes sometime, sometimes. And I love church. I love the specialness of church. Let me make that... Very clear up front, I think the church is distinct, it's the called people of God, called out of the world, it's headed, by, headed up by elders, deacons serve in the church, you have the Lord's Supper, you have baptism, you have ways that mark the church out in a unique way that's special. But that doesn't mean that the secular work that you do, whether at home with kids or on the job, is any less spiritual or any less part of your personal sanctification and holiness, right? Christianity is 24-7. And if you view it that way, then you can redeem back 40 years of your life, because most of your life is about work or reacting to your work. And if you see it as God's calling and something he's doing in your life, whether it's good or bad, then, you know, it's redeemed. It's... it's It's fulfilling, it's satisfying that you were called to that life. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whether you're even talking to your children around the supper table, that's work. We work all the time, don't we? We not only go to jobs, but we come home and we we clean up the house, we, we prepare meals, we eat, we put kids to bed, we stay up late with teenagers. That's all work. We pay bills, and if you view it all... As part of your sanctification track and calling, it redeems all of it. Martin Luther put it this way. and Martin Luther is a, sort of a key person to quote because he spearheaded the Protestant Reformation and was, was you know, highlighting justification by grace through faith, but he was also highlighting a common man's vocation as something that's spiritual. He was trying to erase the dividing line between secular and sacred and say, look, it's all to the glory of God. And, that, and so Luther said, changing a baby's diaper is holy work. Well, I don't know about that. However, Martin Luther said this. He said, look, God gives us our daily bread, and he gives it through the farmer, the miller, and the baker. That's how we're getting our daily bread, through hard, laboring work. That's how God is providing. God, he said, provides the hands that milk the cow to give us our milk. Right? The, the whole system of economics is, is derived from the idea of a household. The biblical words in, in the original language are, are oikos and economy, where we get the economic system. So the Lord is behind all of the economics. And if you begin the storyline of the Bible in Genesis 1, where do you find God and what is He doing? He's creating. You know what God is doing? He's working. Now, God works differently than ourselves. I mean, we work and we expend energy, but, but God is viewed as creating in Genesis chapter 1. And on the seventh day, he's viewed as, or he's portrayed as resting. Genesis 2, 1 through 3 says on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. You say, well, that's good for God, but, you know, for us, work is a curse, right? Adam and Eve fell, and then we have to work by the sweat of our brow. Isn't that right? Well, if you back the story up a little bit into Genesis chapter 2, verses 1, verse 15, you'll see that God put man in the Garden of Eden, and he designed for man and the woman to work. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden To work it and keep it. Just think about that. Now, work got contaminated by sin. I mean, it did become labor that is cursed by the fall, where we do have aches and pains by what we do. We do sweat it out when we work. But there's a sense of satisfaction to our work. Why? Because God designed us to work before the fall of man. It's just part of what we're supposed to be doing And that mindset is transformational because now when you're working, you shouldn't be just resenting the fact that you have to sweat it out. You should look at it like part of how God made you to be able to think and create and motivate and do whatever you do to the glory of God. Man fell, that's true, but work is still by design and rewarding, just like when a mommy gives birth to her new baby. I mean, the fall and sin affected that too. I don't know, you know, what women go through. We'll never know, don't want to know. But I have observed this dynamic a few times where when Judy saw the new baby, somehow the pain of childbearing goes away, at least for a little while. It's like, wow, praise the Lord, I see this new life. And in the same way work is like that. When we accomplish our jobs and do a job well done, there's satisfaction, there's redemption in that. Ecclesiastes talks about this. Solomon wrote this wisdom literature saying that we should find enjoyment in our toil. Ecclesiastes 3:13 says that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift of man, gift to man. It's a calling. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you might turn over there, and the New Testament talks about how our jobs and our life situations, you know what they are? They're a calling to us. Verse 17, it says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Do you see those words, assigned and called? That's where you find calling in the scripture. It's not not just the people who are set apart for ministry that are called, it's every life circumstance is a calling or an assignment from the Lord. In this situation, Paul is talking about people who are circumcised and then they become a Christian, or people who are uncircumcised and they become a Christian. Should the uncircumcised person try to fit in by being circumcised? And Paul's saying, look, live out the life that you're... Finding yourself in to the glory of God. Don't necessarily change things up. If you're if you're saved and you were a slave, don't necessarily look to be free from that. You could apply that to work situations or occupations. If you're saved and you're in a secular job, you're not necessarily supposed to get out of that job. If you're if you're married, you're not necessarily supposed to become unmarried, or if you're single, you're not supposed to be married necessarily once you become a Christian. In other words, Recognize that God has put you in a certain station of life for a purpose to transform your life in and through that station of life, that occupation, that calling, that assignment. That's what God does in our lives. We're salt and light, and we're actually affecting the culture in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Do you ever think about your job in that way? Do you think about your job like like this, where you show up and you think, you know, Lord, you've put. That guy, Tom, that that guy, Joe, that guy, John or Jan, those people are in my life for me to reach them, and that's why I'm here going to work. I'm not just going to work to earn my job or fulfill my job description. I'm going to church to be salt and light to that person. I'm going to work, rather, to be salt and light. I'm going to work or my vocation so that I can be a, a preservation agent on this situation. I remember when I worked on the construction um, site and said I'm a Christian and I'm studying for ministry, it, it cleaned up the language pretty good, you know, for a little while. And that's part of being salt and light. And that's how we should view our job. Paul takes this very seriously back in 2 Thessalonians 3. As I said before, he, he uses a lot of this epistle to talk about working a job. And everything I've said so far is prologue, to what Paul talks about in these verses. I wrote out a very practical outline because your work ethic tells a lot about who you are as a person. It answers a lot about you, and it answers a lot about me. How we work and how well we work is a litmus test for our character. It's on display. It is. And so what we find here is eight answers, your work ethic answers eight questions about who you are. Your work ethic answers eight questions about who you are. First question that's answered, are you a godly influence? Are you a godly influence? Look at verse 6. Paul says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now, there's an interesting situation going on. We stop there. In this local church, you had a select few people in this body who were characterized as being idle or lazy. Not everybody in the church was lazy. This wasn't a broad trend in the church. I I don't see that. Verse 11 says it was some, some among them that were lazy or idle. But these idle people were having a pervasive influence on the church. They were coloring the environment or atmosphere of the body of Christ. They were being enabled not to work by the body of Christ. And this trend was spreading so much that Paul needed to address it with some authority and severity and straightforwardness, some candor. He says, I command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he says, brothers, I command you. You could generalize that to brothers and sisters. I'm commanding you this, but I'm commanding you this in the strongest possible way, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from a brother who's idle, who's walking in idleness, who has a lifestyle of idleness. What in the world is he saying to do here? He's saying to create some healthy distance from a person that's like this. Now back to our character question. Are you a godly influence? You're either someone who is proactive or you're someone who's like this or trending like this. A lazy person is someone who's unruly, someone who's out of line, someone who's undisciplined. And Paul is... Marking out people that are the severest version of this. But in one sense, you're either influencing positively or negatively in your work environment. You are. These are brothers in Christ. These are Christians. But these are people that would be seen like a little leaven that's leavening the whole lump. And he's commanding for some separation from these people. Why? Because he did not want these people to influence the atmosphere of the whole. That's what he's talking about. It's a call to separate. It's where Paul is saying, look, it's not okay for you to act like everything's okay with these certain people within the church. And we're going to talk about this next week because he actually brings it to even more clarification in verses 13 through 15 where he's talking about bringing people like this before the church in church discipline. It was that severe. You know, don't underestimate the power of influence either. I've said this sort of my whole Christian life. You are like the people that you hang around. If you want to know who you're becoming or where you're headed in life, just look at your most intimate friends. The people that you spend time with the most. They're influencing you. And you want to be a godly influence... You don't want to be that, but these people, their influence was so negative, there needed to be some separation for the sake of the church and for their own sake because they were being enabled to be lazy. They were being countenanced. They were being affirmed in their laziness, and it wasn't good for them either. So there needed to be some severity there. There was a professor at Liberty University who used to always say, to be great for God, you have to read good books And you have to spend time with great people. And I think that's really true. That's the positive way of looking at influence. If you spend time with people who are achieving, who are excelling, who are growing in grace, who are readers, who have a direction, you know what? That's going to rub off on you. It will. It will help you. And I think you can find people to be around at conferences or online, on the Internet, watching different um, things, videos. You can spend time with people like that. I've, I've always looked at reading as spending time with a mentor. And I would encourage you to do that as you go into the new year and perhaps evaluate the people that you spend time with that are a negative influence on your life. Maybe you need to create some distance there. Maybe they aren't in the Lord and their, their worldliness is influencing you and causing your, your heart to Cool a bit spiritually. You need to think about that. That's what Paul is talking about here. First Corinthians 15 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. Who's your number one influence? Well, Paul, as he goes into verse 7, puts himself out there and he's saying, Look, distance yourself from lazy people, but he puts himself out there as an example of someone who's not lazy. He does. And this brings us to our second character question. What is your reputation? Because Paul was staking his teaching on his own reputation that he had had with them. Now, at first you might read these verses and think, man, Paul is really, you know, high on himself. Is he arrogant here? Does he have a sanctified self-esteem going on? What's the deal here? I don't know. But I just want to make the case that Paul was putting himself out there as a mentor, as a leader, and a guy who is a missionary was doing the normal thing that missionaries do. Look at verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. Let's stop there. Paul had a strong reputation with this church, and he was reminding them that when he and Timothy and Silas were planting this church in Thessalonica, they worked night and day to make this thing happen. They did. But you know what? That sort of night and day work ethic is normal. It's normal. It's the normal Christian life. You might say, what are you talking about? Well, first of all, if you were going into a, a church planning situation on the mission field, would you want them, this the small group of people to feed you so that you could teach them the word of God? Probably not. I mean, you'd want to show up and if you could work a job during the day and be an active participant with everybody else that's working, you'd want to do that. And then you'd want to free up in the afternoons or evenings to study the word of God and have some night church, right? I mean, that's kind of what he's talking about. He worked night and day. It's what missionaries do. It is. He wanted to be not superhuman. He just wanted to be investing himself in a young church. And he was, you know, a young or middle-aged man who was single and freed up to do this kind of missionary work. That's what he did. It's not some sanctified guilt trip where he's saying, look, I work night and day. How dare thou be lazy? He's not doing that. He's just saying, look, it's normal to work hard. And you know what? You work hard. I know you do. I know you do. You get up in the morning, you, you, you take care of business on the home front, and then you, you ship off to work, and you work eight hours, and you come back, and you prepare a meal, and you spend time with your family, you make phone calls. If you're freed up in the home right now, maybe you go off and do some volunteer work, or you come back and serve at the church. You work night and day. You're working all the time. If you view all of work as sacred, you're working night and day, just like Paul said he did here. He's not saying he's anything extra special. He's just saying, I worked a job. I did my part. And so I'm worthy of imitation. The word imitation here in verse 7 is mimetai. You can mimic his life. It's just an example of discipleship. 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, and 9 talks about how he worked. And he didn't only give the gospel, but he gave his, his very own life to them. He did. Paul didn't want to be a burden. You know what makes his work special, though is he wasn't running on a performance treadmill. He wasn't about his own personal ego in his work ethic. He was about the gospel. That's what melts my heart, not his work ethic, but his motive behind why he did what he did. It was heart, a heart for the church, a heart for the people. and he earned his own bread. And this brings us to our third question. Do you have integrity? You know, is your influence godly? How's your reputation? And then do you have integrity? Are you the same on the outside as you are on the inside? Are you the same on the inside as you are on the outside? Are you the real thing? Paul was saying in verse 8, I didn't sponge off the church. I didn't come and just let the church feed me so I could do the ministry. The Corinthian church, at least some false teachers in the Corinthian church, were actually accusing Paul while he was writing this letter, that he was robbing the churches, that, that he was a person who was a thief or a person who was using the churches. And in Second Corinthians 11:8, he says, sarcastically, "You know, when I was robbing the churches to say, "Listen, that's ludicrous. He wasn't idle. He was a worker." He was a man of God who was the real thing. Question number four. Question number four. Are you driven? It brings us back into verse eight again. He says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. He didn't sponge off of the church, but he was driven. Look at these words. With toil and labor we worked. Those three words compacted together really are supercharged to saying we were motivated, we were driven, we went for it, we toiled, we labored, and we worked. Three words in a row saying the same thing. And I've mentioned this before, there's a lot of people out there that just aren't driven about their lives, and I don't totally understand that. I don't. I I struggle sometimes when I talk to people, and all they can do when they begin to talk about their job or their life is say negative things. There's so much to live for because we're bought with the blood of Christ, right? There's so much to be driven about when you you put a gospel perspective on it. Even if it's hard or you're suffering, God's using that in your life to transform you for his glory. And you might be the redemptive difference in someone's life that you're around in the workplace. It's very important. This is a very important message about the Christian life because being church is not just about showing up here. I would far rather you be energized and on fire out there and come back here to worship God and recuperate from what you're doing out there for the glory of God. That's very important. It's having a redemptive influence out in the culture. I was thinking about how, you know, work at the home, even as you relate to your kids or as you relate to your teenagers, is so important. It's such sacred work. I don't have a teenager yet, but I've talked to a lot of parents who have counseled me. Look, you just wait. You think your life is something now. You just wait till you get, you know, that teenager and those late-night conversations then. And I've kind of heeded that warning. But the reason that someone, a parent, stays up late with their kid at bedside and works through something on that level is because they love them and they see that work as sacred not just functional not just getting through but important and that's what Paul is saying here it's being driven it's saying that you really don't have a secular boss i mean you have somebody who functions as that boss but God is your boss Ephesians 6 6 says that we work not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Love that phrasing. You're not someone who's just, you know, you know, working hard as the boss man goes by, and then when he leaves, you just set your shovel up like this, right? You're not that. You're not, you know, old my, my employer is walking by, so I'm shifting things on my desk, so I look busy, and then I just go back to Facebook, you know? I mean, that's, that's not how it's supposed to be. You, you're conscience-driven because you're not an eye-pleaser or a man-pleaser. You're pleasing the Lord. He knows how hard you work. Serve him. Work for his glory. My wife and I, we watched uh, Larry King Live the other night. On CNN, we were watching this spot on the richest man in the world. Anybody else see that? Carlos Slim and, you know, what is he worth, $65 billion? But most of the, the conversation between Larry and Carlos was not about how he made all that money. I mean, he, had, he was raised, a, you know, by a father who was a businessman and had some principles and all of that. But all he really wanted to talk about was his family, his kids, Three boys, three girls. I made them all live, you know, in two rooms. So they shared bathrooms together and they lived in, you know, with each other. And they learned to share and make great relationships and friendships. And then there was this tour through the house where they had pictures of his small home that he lived in. Or smaller home, not super small. But a nice home that had gardens and just places for family to run into each other. That's what he wanted to talk about. That's what mattered most to him. Now, this wasn't a Christian episode, but there was something redemptive about that interview in my mind. Life is not about earning money. It's about trying to do the right thing and letting the Lord work out the finances in your life. Number five, are you a servant? Are you a servant? Verse nine, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves, an example to imitate. Now, what's he talking about here? What's the right that he's talking about? Paul knew that as a minister of the gospel, as an apostle, he could have put the burden on the church for them to provide for him and his missionary companions while he was there. But he didn't want to do that. He instead wanted to serve them. He wanted to go above and beyond the call of duty. Now, elsewhere in the pastoral epistles, First Timothy five seventeen, it says that elders who rule well and are separated for preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. There's definitely a theology of providing for men and women in the church. First Timothy chapter five talks about widows indeed who need to be provided for in the church. First Corinthians nine three through thirteen talks about the right that ministers have to be provided for. Paul was provided for on the mission field. We know as you read Philippians that he was thanking them for providing for him to be separated from ministry. But in this case, he was working a job to serve this church. You know what he was doing? He was going above and beyond the call of duty. He wasn't just lining out his job per his job description. He was seeing more things that he could do intangible things, things that only the Lord would know about, and he went above and beyond what he was asked to do. And you know what that does when you do that on your workplace? It's a powerful witness. It is undeniably powerful. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, when you go above and beyond and people see that by accident, it's unmistakably powerful. It is. I was thinking of the story of the Good Samaritan and how... You had the man who was on his way to Jericho and he was was beaten, he was probably robbed, he was stripped, he was left for being half dead on the road. And the Levite and the priest walked by. You know where they were going? They were on their way to work in Jericho and they passed the need by. In Luke chapter 10, it was the lawyer who was asking Jesus, he said, look, I've fulfilled the whole law, I keep the law, what am I supposed to do to be part of this kingdom? And, and Jesus said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And the lawyer said, okay, okay, in a performance mode, okay, who's my neighbor? Well, Jesus really wanted to get to his heart and make an example out of this moment. And so he talks about a man who's desperately in need. And if you look at the story, you would think that the punchline would be that that man half dead is the neighbor. But actually what Jesus says is it's the Samaritan that came by who felt compassion on that man. That person who you're not racially comfortable with that met that person's need, that's the neighbor. That's who I want you to be. That's what Jesus did. Just open the man up. And that's who we're supposed to be. That's our calling. That's that's what makes work a calling, is when you're like that in your work week. I was at Carr's grocery store, of all places, during Christmas holiday, back when it was colder, much colder, and negative numbers, and not 40 degrees outside in the glory temperature right now. But uh, I was, you know, I'm just getting my groceries with my son and, uh, you know, loading them up in my Suburban. And all of a sudden I see this lady come out, and she was, you know, a young woman, but she, she had her grocery cart filled. And somehow it hit a rock or some ice or whatever, and her grocery cart just spills over. And the two liter of Coke made it really dramatic because it hit the ground, shook, and shot all the Coke out like a rocket blast. You know, it was just really dramatic. And so I I didn't really even think about it. I just found myself running over there to to put groceries back in. But I was beat there by four other people who were putting the groceries in uh, before I even got there. Why? It's because it's just the right thing to do. It's just what people do. They go above and beyond, whether they're Christians or not Christians. You know, I thought about that, and I thought, you know, this is that illustration where a lot of preachers will say, look, you know, I was there as a Christian doing that, you know, but unbelievers were there too. And how much more should we as Christians be the ones you know, lifting up the food or whatever? No, it's just it's what people do. God splashes his grace on people and in their hearts, even as unredeemed sinners, Oftentimes, people, when they see a need, they'll, they'll meet that need if it's dramatic enough. I mean, I, driving around, I saw a, a, a truck, you know, that was in the ditch in the snow, and just as soon as that truck was in the ditch, I saw another truck just pulling off just to go and help. That's, that's the culture around us, especially here in Anchorage and Alaska. It's, it's a culture of service. And it's a picture of God's grace. And it's just a picture of what we're also supposed to be doing as Christians. You know, the difference between our doing something and somebody else doing something is really motive. We want to splash God's glory on display. We want to use these opportunities as moments to share Christ in the gospel. And God can use that. But service is service. And we should be all about doing things for people. It's having the right mindset. All right, here's another question to ask yourself. Do you sacrifice? And when I say sacrifice, I don't mean just like sacrificial service, like point five, but sacrifice in this sense. Are you willing to put yourself out there for the sake of the gospel? It's one thing to serve like everybody else does and to try to go above and beyond, but it's another thing to talk about why you do what you do. To say something biblical, to stand on biblical principles. You're willing to put yourself out there. It's danger time, right? It's where you risk relationships. You risk perhaps your position in in whatever employment you're in. But look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's sacrifice. That's Paul sacrificing himself. He's putting himself out there and he's saying, look, I'm willing to risk relationships here and say the hard thing. This is the most loving thing Paul could do is say, look, we need to not just protect ourselves from being influenced by these people, but we need to stand on principle and not enable these people by giving them food when they're unwilling to work. They're not providing for their own. First Timothy 5, if you won't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. These are very hard-hitting statements. Perhaps there was the love feast that was going on regularly in the early church, and they're saying, look, you can't invite these people to that love feast because you don't want to affirm their extreme laziness. Now, we all have a touch of laziness in our lives, right? I mean, we all do. We all fight against our own idle lives. I think of the old sort of parabolic statement, you know, Idle hands are the devil's workshop. A lot of times we want to be working. We want a job, a task, a mission, just to keep our minds focused so that we can do the right thing. And there's redemption all in that. But these people had given up. They had, by conviction, said, I'm not going to work anymore. Some people like to say, Paul's talking about the end times. And that teaching actually influenced people to say, look, I'm just going to you know, head for the hills and not work anymore. Because Jesus is coming back. And so I've got a spiritual reason for that. But that's not specified here. It's just that old sin of laziness on steroids. All right, next question. Are you making the right investment? Verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness... Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Look at that play on words. Paul's saying, look, you're not busy doing what you need to be doing, but you're buzzing all around the church, promoting your lazy ethic. In 1 Timothy 5.13, we don't have time to unpackage that, but there were women who wanted to be put on a list as widows indeed that were still young and, and they weren't proven in their character. And Paul is saying, look, if you enable these women and you make them full-time widows who are, who are paid to be widows in our church, they're going to abuse that. They're going to go after um, marriage still. They're going to want to be married still and they're going to sort of condemn this whole grace gift and he calls them busybodies. He says they're gossiping, they're causing division and they're busybodies in the church. 1 Timothy 5:13. So your investment needs to be in the kingdom as you work a job, not investing in being lazy, being a gossip spreading strife in the church. A lot more we could say there. Question number 8, is your life stable? Verse 12. Verse 12, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You know, I've heard a lot of sort of schools of thinking that say, look, you need to make your life a big splash effect, whether in the secular world or in the Christian church, full time ministry. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. It teaches that we should work a job, that we should try to just persevere and be faithful. Gaining income, helping the economy, living our lives in steady work. First Timothy two talks about praying for our leaders, praying for people who are over us. Why? So that our world will be at peace. I've known a lot of homes and households that are stressed because they don't know where their paycheck is coming from. They don't have a steady economy. It blows households apart. It does. And Paul is saying instead, work a job, gain a life skill, and live a quiet life, a stable life, behind the scenes, working hard so that you can bring glory to God. All right, here's a question. Like with all of these work and calling points, being a a good influence or a godly influence, having a good reputation, a strong integrity, being driven, being a servant, being sacrificial, making the right investment, all of these things you could sort of put into a a self-help book almost, you know? And, And just say, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, you should have these character qualities. You can almost do that with this. But there's one difference. We do these things because of the gospel. You want to be these things because Jesus has changed your heart to want to be these things. That's how it should be. We do these things, whatsoever we do, whether we eat or drink, all to the glory of God. And when people sense that on us, then we are salt and we are light. We're creating a redemptive influence. Outsiders are looking at us and saying, what's different about that person? We're doing it not to please man. We're doing our work to please God who sees us first and foremost. Here's a few take-home points. These are summary points of all that I've said because this message has been practically driven. Number one, the gospel makes work a calling, not a curse, 1 Corinthians 7. Second, the gospel turns our work into worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2. You are a living sacrifice, not just Wednesdays and Sundays, 24-7. Number three, the gospel erases the line between secular and sacred vocations, or work. Your salt and light. Number four, the gospel turns your job into a mission field. Or it should. We need to make disciples wherever we are. And God planted you there. That is your evangelism explosion. Your work. Your job. Number five, the gospel transforms the way Christians view their job, or it should. God is causing all things to work together for the good. What's the good? Romans 8, 28 and 29, that you'd be more and more like Christ let for prayer. Father, as we take a few moments now to think about your cross and think about the Lord's table, I pray, God, that we would examine ourselves. We thank you that communion is here at Anchorage Grace an open communion for all believers, all people who are in Christ should participate. But I pray that we would not participate in an unworthy manner. So, Lord, let us now take a few moments to examine our hearts to make sure we are right with you and to make sure we are right with others before we participate. Let's take a few moments of silence. Father, we thank you that we can focus on the cross now, and as the men come forward to serve us, Lord, let us be sanctified in truth and surrounded with the gospel in our thinking. We thank you that we can eat the bread and drink the cup in a worthy manner only because of Christ alone. And Lord, we we heed the warning that 1 Corinthians 11 says that some became weak and ill and even have died for taking it in the wrong way. And Lord, we want to now enact the discipline of remembering and remember the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ask the men now to pass the bread to the congregation and I'll read a few words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 1, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. says, For I received from the Lord what was delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he had be- was betrayed took bread, and we had, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, on the night of Passover, Jesus sat around a table with his disciples. In John 13, it portrays them. They would have been laying around on their right elbow, relaxed but also anticipating that Jesus was going to die and give his life. And the hour was imminent for when he would do that. And Judas Iscariot was betraying him. And so in that sobering mindset, I want us to partake of this because we remember that Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Let's partake together. Now I'd ask the men to distribute the cup as we remember the blood that was sacrificed on the cross for our sins. First Corinthians 11, again, it's where Paul says, in the same way also he took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's together now remember the new covenant together. That is the promise that Jesus made that we are bought with the blood of Christ forever. Let's take it together. Father, we thank you for the blood that was spilt at Calvary. We thank you that we are in Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that as he rose and is seated at the right hand of the Father, we too are co-equal heirs with that promise in the new covenant that we are forever yours. Thank you for our fellowship and our time together in your truth. And I pray that we would live out this message in our workplace for your glory in this new year. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for our final closing. I just want to invite you to participate in our church uh, this year. Find ways to jump in and serve. Bible studies, community groups, um, ways to serve on Wednesday nights, etc. There are plenty of ways to plug in. We'd love to help you do that. We have an information table over there. If you need to become a member or seek baptism or anything at all, we want to extend ourselves to you. If you don't yet know Christ... I'll be down front. Other counselors are here and available to counsel you. If you have spiritual needs, we want to be there for you as well. and just want to wish you a happy new year and hope you have a wonderful week this week. Dismissed.